This program is presented by a community producer through Midland Community Television. The City of Midland and MCTV are not responsible for the content of the program. The views presented do not necessarily represent those of the City of Midland or MCTV. If you would like to produce your own program, contact MCTV at 837-3474 or access our website, cityofmidlandmi.gov slash MCTV. We hope you enjoy the following presentation. The League of Women Voters, a nonpartisan political organization, encourages the informed and active participation of citizens in government and influences public policy through education and advocacy. The goal of the League of Women Voters of the United States is to empower citizens to shape better communities worldwide. Welcome to today's Candidate Forum, brought to you by the League of Women Voters of the Midland Area and Midland Community Television, or MCTV. You will be hearing from candidates for the 98th District State Representative. I am Kim Steinke, President of the League of Women Voters of the Midland Area. The League is a nonpartisan political organization that works at the national, state, and local levels. Membership in the League is open to all people 16 and over, both men and women. We are committed to the informed and active participation of citizens in government, and we neither support nor oppose candidates. We always welcome new members. Information about joining the League is available on our website www.lwv-midland.org or you can ask any league member about it. Here's an overview of how today's program will run. We will start out with an introduction of the candidates running for the office and give each candidate two minutes for an opening statement. After each candidate has given an opening statement, I will pose questions to which each will be asked to respond. Each candidate will be allowed an initial response to each question up to two minutes in length, as well as a reply after both have had an opportunity to give initial responses. Replies will be limited in length to one minute per candidate. The candidates have participated in a coin toss to determine who will be the first speaker. That order will be rotated in responding 
to questions throughout the forum. Following the question and answer period, each candidate will have an opportunity to make a one-minute closing statement. Jane Worth is our official timer. She is seated next to me, and Jane will raise a warning card when the speaker has 30 seconds, then 15 seconds, and when the time is up, the speaker will need to stop only after the completion of a sentence. Let's get started with the candidate for the 98th State House District. The candidates vying for this seat are Democrat Sarah Schultz and Republican Annette Glenn. We'll start off with the opening by Sarah, who won the coin toss. So Sarah, you have the privilege and you have two minutes for the opening statement. Great, thank you so much, Kim, and thank you to the League of Women Voters and to MCTV. I'm Sarah Schultz, and I'm running to be your representative in Lansing. I'm the Vice President for Human Resources at a large national nonprofit, nonprofit that helps students in urban schools graduate. I'm from Flint. I'm the daughter and granddaughter of UAW auto workers. I'm the wife of a public school teacher and the mom of two middle schoolers in Midland Public Schools. I believe in good jobs. I believe that people should not have to work two jobs in order to survive. I believe in healthy communities where everyone thrives. And I believe that Michigan schools can be on top again. In 2008, I lost my job and I and my husband and our two babies moved into a very old trailer home that did not have running water. It had a leaky roof and barely any heat. We were a young family who needed help and we got it. From enrolling our kids in My Child Health Insurance to using food banks, we could not have made it through that time without our community. And I want to make sure that that support is there for other young families who need to get back on their feet. And boy, have we needed each other in the last seven months. From COVID, where my team and I hand-knitted or handmade 12,000 face masks for our community, to when we, during the flood, took, uh, took off work for weeks to help our community and our neighbors recover. These disasters in the recent times have proven that our community has never been more important to us than it is now. I believe that true leaders serve and put people over politics so everyone can reach their full potential because when we do that, everyone is, all, is better off. I can't wait to serve our community in Lansing, and I will be honored to have your vote on November 3rd. Thank you. Annette, you have two minutes. Thank you, and I appreciate the invitation to be with you as well and the work you do in helping support getting voter information out, so thanks for having us back. I am Nick Glenn, the current representative of the 98th District, which encompasses parts of Bay and Midland County. I've been married 37 years. I have five children and eight really wonderful grandchildren, many that still live and work or go to school in the area, and we are extremely blessed to call the 98th home. I grew up in a family of seven kids. My dad was a dentist and my mom was a nurse and we all started working in my dad's office at age eight, learning to balance a checkbook and to work hard. Our family always followed current events and was always involved in public service, community service and neighborhood service, which brings me to where I am today. 
I was elected in 2018 for the first time and shortly thereafter was appointed to serve on the House Appropriation or the Budget Setting Committee, where I used everything, constantly using everything that my parents have taught me about hard work and how to balance a checkbook to craft our over $60 billion budget. I currently serve on the Health and Human Service and K-12 subcommittees. I vice chair licensing and regulatory affairs, uh, Department of Insurance and Financial Services, Natural Resources and Environmental Quality, and I chair Michigan State Police and our military and veteran affairs. When I'm not working on the 75% of the state budget, I have had the privilege to work on legislation that protects children from abuse and neglect, protects victims from human trafficking, and protects families and people from sexual assault. We've worked to increase government accountability and to ensure that we have funded critical literacy programs and ensuring that all kids were able to go back to school this fall in a manner that was safe for them. I am honored and humbled to be serving and I look forward to continuing to serve in the future. Thank you. Thank you, Annette. Let's get down to hearing your questions that the members of the Midland League will leave will be of interest to voters. I'll let you know when it's your turn to answer each question. Also, I will repeat a question for anyone who asks it. Annette, you will be the first to take, you will be, you will be the first to answer the following question. And again, you will have two minutes. What are the three biggest issues facing Michigan to be addressed by the state legislature in the next term? Thank you. Well, I don't think there is any doubt that one of our top three issues is going to be coronavirus recovery, whether it's navigating the unemployment insurance agency or the often confusing and somewhat conflicting executive orders or placing COVID patients into nursing homes. I believe there were a lot of situations where the governor and the state could have handled things better if we'd had further collaboration. And these are all issues that still need to be addressed on top of navigating how to safely open our economy, which absolutely must be science-based and a common sense approach to recover. It needs to be focused on a regional approach that's best for each area rather than a one size fits all so that our children can be educated safely and effectively and we can continue to move the state forward. Locally, there's no question that flooding, flood recovery and rebuilding is a top priority. Moving forward, I want to continue to ensure that we have a truly independent investigation, that the dam owner, the state, and anyone else responsible for the dam failure is held accountable. I want to continue working on dam safety and funding as a member of the DNR and EGLE subcommittees to help prevent a situation from like this from ever happening in the state again. I will continue to work with our champion village president, Dolores and Sanford, and helping in any way that I possibly can with the recovery. Education and literacy and racial justice are gonna be the third thing I think is we need to focus on. Over 50% of our third graders are not reading at grade level, which makes them four times more likely to drop out of school and end up in that prison pipeline. We need to focus on ensuring our at-risk students and minority children are not disadvantaged. We need to take care of our children and our communities, ensure they have the resources needed to be successful in their education, their lives and their careers. If they can dream it, we need to help them achieve it. Those are my top three priorities. Thank you. Thank you. 
Sarah, you now have two minutes to answer the question. Thanks so much, Kim. So the top three priorities that come to mind for me the most not, are not just my top priorities, but they're the top priorities of our district based on hundreds and hundreds of conversations that I've been able to have with citizens over the last two years. And those priorities have really remained pretty constant. They're strong schools, making sure that we're respecting and resourcing our teachers, that we don't have a digital gap or an educational gap in our students' ability to meet their fullest potential, especially in this face of COVID and especially in the face of the teacher shortage. Second, good jobs, right? The ability for us to have jobs in our district that provide pay equity for um, people of color and for uh, pay equity for uh, gender, um, that we have strong unions, that we have a living wage and good benefits that people can have for their jobs so that if they're working a full-time job, they have the security and flexibility to plan for the future. And also healthy communities, right? By that, I mean, a healthy infrastructure in our communities, not just roads, but also Wi-Fi access and also dam, uh, the, our dam system to make sure that infrastructure is, is safe. And that we need to close the $16 billion investment gap in our water infrastructure that was identified by the Snyder administration. But also healthy communities is having healthy bodies and making sure that we have access to uh, prescription drugs that are not so costly that people in our community are making a decision between whether or not to buy their insulin or pay their rent. And our, we're able to also have healthy relationships among community members in this polarized environment. I think COVID is a big issue, but COVID actually magnifies the necessity to focus on all of the other issues that I just talked about. Um, and it definitely uh, comes into play when, when I'm out talking with folks in the community. Thank you. Annette, would you like to take a one minute reply? Thank you. There is so much work to be done. And it has been a blessing and a privilege to be part of what we have done and accomplished so far. Whether it was partnering together during COVID to get businesses open safely, whether it was being part of the return to learn package that got our kids back going to school this fall. All of those are important things that we need to continue to focus on. And I continue to look forward to working on all of those issues along with dam safety. Thank you. Sarah, would you like one minute? Sure, I uh, think so related to COVID, right? So my team, uh, it was like the Tuesday after schools shut down, already were mobilized with 89 volunteers to make uh, face masks for first responders and essential workers in our community. I think one critical thing we need to learn from COVID is we need to make sure that our state is prepared should a, a situation like that happen in the future and not be caught flat-footed with a shortage of something like PPE. We should not have to rely on community organizers and community groups to protect our workers. And that is something that we've learned throughout this COVID process that I hope we use as a cautionary tale into the future. All right, thank you. Uh, you will have this first chance to the second question. What is your position on the recently approved 21-22 state budget, specifically regarding the state's efforts to maintain fairness and quality of life? 
Yeah. So I appreciate and actually just had um, coffee this morning with Senator Stamas and we were talking about the budget and he was um, explaining how excited he was that we actually that we were able to pass the budget given the contentiousness of the budget process in the year before. And I definitely appreciate any effort um, to arrive at bipartisan solutions to make sure that we're funding um, uh, programs that are important to us in this state. Um, we have to be thinking about not only um, how do we balance our budget, but where our priorities lie. Um, I've always said that our budget, be it our family budget, our company budget, or our state budget, is not just a bunch of numbers uh, in a spreadsheet. Uh, it's actually a statement of our values. And if we look at a budget and we can show where our values are by how we've resourced and how we've um, invested in the things that are important, like education and healthcare, so that we're not playing lip service to those pieces, but that we're actually, um, we're actually resourcing them adequately. Um, I think that there's a lot more we can do when it relates to our budget, specifically as it comes to um, education. Um, education is, um, is important because um, we've had, since 2004, our state has taken a nosedive in education funding to the bottom of the list. And I can see us having little blips up in the right direction in the last two years, but um, we have a long way to go before we're able to resource and invest in education to the level that we need to compete with other states and to compete with other countries. So it's, it's not gone far enough um, as far as I'm concerned, but um, it is a step in the right direction and I really love seeing the, um, the uh, satisfaction from both parties in Lansing around some of, the, some of the things that we were able to accomplish. Thank you. Annette, it's your time for two minutes on this question. Thank you. I can tell you that uh, with the coronavirus, it was an unusual year with the budget process. Initially, when we were looking at what's called the Revenue Estimating Conference, or CREC, we were anticipating almost a $3 billion shortfall. We were anticipating having to cut about a billion dollars out of education, which nobody wanted to do. Spent a lot of late nights wondering what were going to be the solutions and how we were going to be able to fund critical infrastructure, take care of our kids, take care of our first responders. So we were blessed with some of the federal funding and the way that came into the state and the way that worked. It actually allowed us to be in a situation where we did not have to make those cuts. It bought us time to look at what's going to be happening next year. This year we were actually able to fund flexibility for this year's numbers. We were able to create um, just some wonderful programs all around, but I can tell you there was no expectation that we were going to be able to find extra money for schools and yet we were able to do that. So there's additional money for literacy, which was always going to be one of my top priorities. If we don't have our kids reading, we really penalize them for everything they want to accomplish in life and really just put them in a situation where they have to work much harder to accomplish what their dreams are. So the budget was a tough process. It was so much different this year. 
when we had our speeches on the House floor, you had Republicans and Democrats joining together, praising the budget. There was additional money for dam safety funding. We doubled that. And I look forward to continuing to work, crafting healthy budgets that prioritize critical programs and take care of our citizens. Thank you. Thank you. Sarah, would you like a one minute response? You need to take your mic off. All right, thanks so much. Um, so I, I um, heard Annette talk about how she uh, knew how to balance a checkbook before she became uh, our state representative. I think that's great. I want everyone to know that I have been balancing million dollar budgets in my organization for the last 15 years. Um, I know what it's like to make sure that we're making trade-offs um, that prioritize the things that matter and that we understand how the implications of the decisions we make in the budget will affect future years of our organization for 5,000 workers and millions of dollars. Um, I think for that reason, what's really important is we focus on the priorities and in this year and in COVID, it's for sure education. It's also supporting small businesses as the backbone of our economy, making sure that they're prepared to meet reopening standards. And also that we're supporting our workers, um, giving them things like prevailing wages and repealing right to work, making sure that they have paid sick leave for those 1.7 million workers who do not. Thank you. Annette, you have one minute for further response. Thank you. Honestly, I could probably spend three hours talking about the budget and everything that we did to make things work for the citizens. Sarah is absolutely correct that what we fund shows our priorities. So out of everything that we were able to do, increased funding for our students, hazard pay for our teachers, increased funding for our support staff, those all show our values and how much we value our students, our teachers, and our education here. We also increased dam safety funding. We doubled the number of dam inspectors that we have. I don't know that there's anything that's going to be a higher priority in this area given the unpredictability of our rain and our water. I have people talking to me constantly about every time it rains wondering whether they're going to be drenched or not. So I will continue to focus on education, recovering from the coronavirus, and doing everything we can to recover and rebuild from the flood. Thank you. And you're up for this next question. Regarding the recent catastrophic collapse of the Sanford and Edenville dams, what steps will you take, if elected, to strengthen regulatory oversight and legal remedies for residents? Well, as I mentioned in my opening statement, I think it is absolutely critical that we have an independent investigation so that we can determine who all is at fault, the dam owner, the state, regulations, all of that needs to be taken into account so that we can rebuild. I hear the stress in people's lives as they determine on if they rebuild, are they gonna get flooded again? If this happens, what's gonna happen? We have erosion that's continuing to go on. We have vegetation that's growing on our bottomlands and concerns about the stability of that. So there was a new report that came out. It's just the beginning. And there are a lot of ideas they came up with saying that um, our departments were not really taking our dam safety experts 
seriously. Something else I learned about this is our dam safety expert inspectors don't actually go to the dams and inspect them. There is paperwork that is provided by the dams to show what is going on. So by doubling that force, I am hoping that we will actually allow these inspectors to go out and physically look at our dams. Our Sanford Dam had what was called a high hazard rating, which meant when it failed, we were fully expected to lose not only significant property, but life. So I can rarely talk about the flood without giving a huge shout out to our first responders that were able to evacuate over 11,000 people safely. No significant, no significant loss of life, no loss of life whatsoever. Not only that, we didn't even have serious injuries. So um, back to the independent investigation, those are gonna give us the answers in a lot of ways of what we really need to do, but increasing funding for dam safety, our inspectors and holding everyone responsible, accountable and making sure that they take care of their issue and funding as well. Thank you. Sarah, you now have two minutes for your response. Thank you so much, Kim. I know what those flood survivors have been dealing with because I was and still am a flood survivor myself. My family and I and my parents were evacuated off of Wixom Lake by pontoon boat. And we are still down to the studs in those homes trying to rebuild just like so many other people in our communities. And yes, we absolutely have to have an independent investigation, not only into those dam owners, but also into anyone who has received campaign finance donations from those dam owners. And we need to make sure that in the future, no campaign contribution can go to regulated entities like dams. So dam owners who are in a position to devastate communities like ours cannot buy influence from their lawmakers. We need to make sure it never happens again by doubling again the number of inspectors that we have because we actually have thousands of privately owned dams in our, in our state. We need to make sure that those owners are, are able to and can prove that they're able to um, have the money to upkeep and to do repairs on those dams and to help uh, communities if they're devastated. And we need to double the spillway capacities in our state um, to to make them meet the federal standards. Um, we also need to take care of flood survivors, right? Um, we right now have one case manager for every 500 people who are devastated by the floods and that is not nearly enough as folks are trying to rebuild and trying to re-get, re, um, re revisit their lives. Um, and uh, we also need to make sure that we are able to, as I mentioned, close that infrastructure gap uh, that we have in our waterways where we have $16 billion in infrastructure um, that we need to spend that was identified by the Steiner administration. Um, this wasn't uh, an act of God. We could have prevented these dams from uh, failing when they failed. And if we had had good leadership in place um, beforehand to hold them accountable to the repairs that they're responsible for. Annette, would you care to make a one minute response? Yes, thank you. I absolutely agree that in the future, we should absolutely make sure that dam owners have not only the capability financially to repair and upkeep the dams, but also to take care of the damage should anything happen. We absolutely should be able to hold them responsible and make them make people whole. There's no question on that. There's some interesting things that I've been aware of at the state level. For example, the state had a dam repair money 
and we applied for it and we did not get it. That money went instead to actually get rid of some dams instead of repairing some of our high hazard dams. So I want to look at that program as well and make sure those funds go to the Issue, the locations that are most needed. It's important that we protect other communities from suffering the devastation that we have. I can't tell you how many mudded basements and drywall that we have pulled out and helped people with. I don't want anybody else to have to go through what we did. Thank you. Sarah, one minute. They have to go through what we did and are still going through. I know a family of five that's living in a camper in Sanford, one of several, that they're trying to fortify that camper for the winter by putting insulation around the outside and stuffing straw underneath. Meanwhile, they're trying to build their home and all they have right now is a hole in the ground and they don't know how they're going to have the funds to just pour the cement for the foundation, let alone rebuild their home. Um, and we have had a uh, some uh, bill that has been uh, through the House and the Senate and is sitting with the, the governor that will provide help for the municipalities here, but will not provide help for that family to get back on its feet to get in a home that's safe for the winter time. Um, we need to not forget about the families that are still suffering so much from these tragedies and make sure that all of our focus is is eliminating as much red tape as we can and focusing on getting them relief immediately because winter is coming. Thank you. You're first on this next question. For the past 25 years, Michigan has been one of the leading states offering a free market intradistrict schools of choice policy in which students can elect to attend a school in a district other than the one in which they live. Please provide your position on Michigan Schools of Choice policy. What are the advantages and potential disadvantages? Thanks, Kim. No. As I had said before, education writ large is one of the issues that just people bring up to me all the time when I'm out talking to members of our community. And this issue of school of choice, the issue of private charters and private schools and public school funding comes up quite frequently. And I have to say that if we resourced schools to adequately and equitably and made sure that those schools had all the right programs, all the same uh, ability for students to learn and achieve, then we wouldn't be worried about the, some of the issues that come up with school of choice where you have students selecting one school over the other, where schools are having trouble to um, maintain a consistent and stable amount of funding, um, and then you end up with kind of a downward spiral of a school because it's, it's losing funding and it can't support um, the programs that it wants to have. My husband is a public school teacher. He has been for about 20 years. And um, our schools, um, for that period of time have been really devastated by things like standardized testing and accountability measures that are unfair to our teachers and this long-standing reduction in um, school funding and school resourcing. If we were able to actually resource those schools enough so that one student who had the ability to make a choice could make a choice 
to go to a school maybe that specialized in something, but a student who did not have that ability to make a choice, right, because their parents aren't able to drive them to school, their parents aren't able to fill out the paperwork to do school of choice, but if that student could stay in their home district and get the same level of education and have the same outlook on their future, then school of choice would be great. But what we do see now is because of the inequities in the way that we have structured and built our schools, we end up with inequities in the ability for our students to learn and be educated. And that's a real problem in our state. Thank you. Annette, you now have two minutes on the same question. Thank you. I do want to address something Sarah ended with on her last one. Sarah, if you've got the name of this individual in the trailer, please have them reach out. Give it to me afterwards. We'll connect afterwards. But we've got all kinds of resources from Home to Stay. FEMA has got rental assistance. We've got 211. There is no reason they need to be in that trailer unless they are choosing to be. We have got resources that we can provide to them while they are rebuilding. And I would be happy to work with you to get those resources to them this afternoon, because that's important. Uh, on to education. I have five children that learn very differently. So we have made, um, we have used every available education option that is out there to meet the needs of our kids. And I have found that other families are exactly like us. Their kids are not cookie cutter. One size fits all does not work for them. We had one that graduated from Midland High, one that graduated from Bay City Western, one that attended the Bay Airnet Career Center and now works for Virgin Orbit in California. We've got kids that did online schooling, that attended a private school for a specific class that was a big benefit to them. We homeschooled. Our kids had different needs at different times in their life. And I can just tell you there's nothing more amazing in this community than how they look at education. It is a top priority. Parents, teachers, everybody is all about the kids. What can we do to meet the needs of the kids? And in some cases, that means schools of choice. In some cases, that may mean charter schools. We've got great charter schools that have served and taken care of kids and brought them up to grade level and allowed them to succeed. We've got others that need to be looked at and probably shut down. So I think the most important thing is to maintain that flexibility so that we can meet the needs of each child individually so they truly can achieve what they desire and they can be where they need to be to learn what they choose to. Thank you. Sarah, would you like a one minute opportunity to reply? I would. Um, uh, Representative Glenn, I'll get to the name of that family and at least five others that I know about. Thank you. And we, I've also been talking with the governor's office, too, to try to get them support. Um, what I'll just say is I, I think that it's true that students learn differently. But it's also true that not every student has the ability to make those choices, right? So the students who have, for example, parents who are um, both essential workers, both working in a hospital and a grocery store, might not have the ability to drive their, their students, their kids across town, two towns over, to go to the school district that might best suit their learning. I would much rather resource our public schools to be able to support any student to be able to learn regardless of their family's ability to give them special access to different choices and options. Um, and I think we need to focus on that to achieve a level of equity for all students, not just the ones that have the privilege of choice. Annette, one minute. Thank you. 
I would love to see funding follow the students so they do have those options. If they need it in another form, if they need it for transportation, then it could be provided for them. I have been unbelievably impressed with the four superintendents that I've gotten to work with over the last two years. They care about these kids. They are looking for innovative ways to keep them in school, to help them achieve their dreams. They are constantly looking at, oh, You've got kids interested in skilled trades. How do we meet that need so that they have those opportunities? You've got ones that are interested in automotives. So that is available at Dow High. I cannot say enough about the superintendents in this district and how much they care for their kids and how much they look to meet every possible need they can, whether that kid chose to stay home virtually, whether they chose a hybrid option, or whether they are coming to school in person. So big shout out to all of our schools, superintendents and principals. You're doing an amazing job, and I look forward to continuing to partner with you. Annette, you have the first opportunity to answer this next question. What are your top three priorities for healthcare, including children's and women's health issues? Top three, that is a tough one. During COVID, we have really looked at some things that we've been able to streamline red tape so that we could get access and care to people quicker than we've been able to in the past. So telemedicine, continuing to allow telemedicine to work, because that will apply to everybody. Uh, my husband happens to be a high-risk individual who typically gets his treatment at U of M. However, his appointment was the week that everything was shut down in March. Since then, he's been able to access that telemedicine, and I've been able to talk to many others, whether it's young students, young children, and mothers, giving them that access. The blessing is no transportation is required. You no longer have to get in a car to go see the doctor. You no longer have to make an appointment and get a babysitter. So I think telemedicine and making sure that continues to be accessible to all of us is going to be absolutely a huge blessing to all of us. And prescription drug prices. That is something I hear about very often when I'm out in the community. There are two bills that Hank Fappell, who chairs health policy, is in the middle of working through. It's going to be a bipartisan package, and as they're working through it, it's going to, um, if you change your health care, uh, you're not, they're not going to be able to change how they reimburse you for prescription drug prices. They're not going to be able to change the price partway through. They're not going to be able to there'll be more transparency. So we'll continue to be able to see exactly what those drugs cost, what to type to research, so that we can make good decisions about how to help support people so they aren't making decisions about what they can do, um, paying rent or electricity or buying their prescription drugs. Another big priority for me is gonna be my docs getting doctors incentives to do their practice and continuing to stay in underserved areas, and specifically in areas of family practice and psychiatry, where those underserved areas really need those additional services. Thank you. Thank you. Sarah, now have two minutes. Thanks, Kim. So healthcare comes up all the time also. I think we sh first we need to strengthen um, and protect Healthy Michigan and the Medicaid expansion, which is especially important in COVID to make sure that um, we're not only uh, protecting and providing healthcare for 
folks who have jobs, but also folks who are un, unemployed and underemployed. I speak with people all the time who are worried about losing their job because they're in lo therefore losing their health insurance, um, especially as our unemployment rates are so high because of COVID. I think mental health is really important. I have a lot of friends and, and acquaintances who are in the mental health profession, be they social workers or therapists, and they talk about the scarcity in mental health facilities in our state, especially for children um, and youth, and especially for specialties. Um, so we need to make sure that we're investing in uh, health care, uh, mental health care. Um, it, that's, that's so important, and also reducing the stigma that sadly still exists around mental health. But I agree with uh, Representative Glenn, uh, prescription drug affordability is a huge one. I think we can go further than the bills that are already currently being proposed and into um, some areas that other states have done, like capping certain drug prices like insulin and, and others. Um, also, um, allowing for the ability for us to cross the border into Canada to be able to um, participate in the programs there that drive prescription drug costs lower. And I think we really should have a, regula a regulatory body, a, a task force in our state to make sure that we are paying attention to pharmaceutical companies, to make sure that they are, uh, those CEOs of pharmaceutical companies are not getting wealthy off of the backs of the, of the sick people of our state. I would also, from a women's health perspective, you know, we, I would focus for sure on women's health, especially in our um, black and brown communities where we know that healthcare and access to healthcare and mobility rates are really, really high. Um, and so we should really be focusing in those areas as well. Thank you. Annette, you have one minute to respond. Yes, thank you. This recent budget the governor just signed this last week increased funding. I think the official term was healthy babies, healthy moms. So I was excited to see that and that focus. That has been an area that has not been really addressed like it should in the budget before. So I was happy to see that. I also need to mention that definitely um, pre-existing conditions need to continue to be covered. That is a big priority that I hear. Prescription drugs and pre-existing conditions are the number two, the first two things I hear all of the time. Mental health is absolutely up. Um, I think our help hotline is up about a thousand percent with the calls that they're getting. And so being able to have psychiatrists and family doctors that they can refer to and get people the help as soon as they can is a big priority as well. Thank you. Sarah, one minute. Thanks, Tim. Um, well, I would just point out that my opponent recently voted no um, with only a handful of other lawmakers on a mental health hotline across the state. So mental health, I think, is very important. Um, also, and I also know that when folks are experiencing mental health issues, that a lot of times a phone call in the middle of the night to someone who's equipped to help them can be an absolute lifesaver. Um, I have a friend who was working a minimum wage at a, at a facility and she stuck herself with a dirty needle. And in order to get the prescription drugs that she needed to make sure that she was not going to um, develop HIV AIDS, it cost her $1,000 for one prescription and $2,000 for the other prescription without insurance, which she did not have. And she was working a minimum wage job. So she was left with a decision. Do I risk control 
contracting HIV or do I max out my credit cards in order to buy these prescriptions and call in loans and ask friends for help? And she ended up doing the latter. I think that we should be able to provide prescription drugs in this country, in this great state for folks like my friend without having to worry about it breaking the bank. Thank you. You're next on this next question. What is your position regarding the Enbridge Line 5 pipeline under the Straits of Mackinac? Thank you, Kim. Um, so I, well, I firmly believe that um, we actually were talking about Line 5 two years ago. Um, so here we are again. It's been two years and we're still talking about Line 5. Back then, um, we were basically uh, making the case to do something about it, right? That we had had a history of an administration who knew the dangers of what was going on with that um, ticking time bomb in the bottom of the Straits of Mackinac, and basically was trying to kick the can down the road. Um, I think we've gone a little bit further into recognizing uh, Line 5 as a very serious issue, and we've moved into um, the, the discussion about what to do about it, which is great, although it's two years later, right? And we still haven't, we haven't come up with a solution. I think that, um, I think that people who say we should go into the bottom of the streets of Mackinac, rip that um, pipeline out of the water, um, are a little bit short-sighted, to be honest with you. I think we have to explore all our options because there are issues with when we do, when we, if we were to remove it and if we were to keep it there. I think um, building the encasement tunnel um, is one of those options that can and should be explored with real um, intent and sincerity about whether or not that's an option. Not only because if it can keep our waterways and our, our precious Great Lakes safe, and also um, create and maintain great jobs and, and in fact good union jobs for our state, then we should um, really consider that as, as an option. I think we're in this space where we're, we live in these extremist worlds, right? Either you want to rip out line five or you want to just leave it there and let it be a ticking time bomb. And I'm always for trying to find the right solution that can um, benefit everyone. Thank you. Annette? Your turn. Thank you. I do hear a little bit about line five, not as much as I hear about the other issues you've asked about. And I am supportive of that tunnel that will drill underneath. That is not only gonna create a lot of jobs, but it's gonna make it safe for us to provide energy to the upper peninsula and the lower peninsula as well. What runs through that pipeline right now is enough gas to fill up 1 million passenger, passenger cars and trucks every single day. There's enough diesel running through it that it's 6,000 semi-tractor trailers every day, and enough jet fuel for 883 commercial planes, and enough propane for 300,000 homes a year. The Upper Peninsula, 65% of all of their propane comes through Line 5, and the Lower Peninsula, 55% of all of our propane comes through Line 5. I think we're going to penalize a lot of families if we were suddenly to determine that we needed to truck that instead of put it through the pipeline. And just to give you an idea, that would take, that amount that they transfer would be 2,100 semis, which would be 90, 90 trucks an hour which would put an increased burden on our infrastructure where we're already continuing to try and find additional road funding to keep our roads up. So I think for safety, 
for heating and cost controls for all of those families, I think the encasement is our best option. It will provide a huge number of jobs that will be a blessing to this entire state at a time when we do have high employment to bring those families in. And you know Michigan, right? Once they come, if they're not already living here, then they're going to want to stay. And we can use all those extra people making Michigan their home too. So I appreciate you asking that question and look forward to continuing to work on it. Thank you. Sarah, would you like to make a one minute reply? Unhook your mic. Sorry, I've been following the rules about mic turning off and then I don't remember to turn it off. Um, so uh, just to be clear, right, I am very um, strongly in favor of reducing our dependency overall on fossil fuel, right? But I don't think that we're ready to do that overnight. And until we are, we need to be able to find real solutions um, to make sure that our the way that we use fossil fuel is as safe as possible. Um, and so I've had a lot of conversations with my friends in the, the building trades and um, in the labor movement um, to about line five and about the safety of that tunnel that is planned. I will say though, we can't wait forever. Right? We can't continue this conversation and be back here two years from now talking about line five as it's, if it's a theoretical problem. We have to find a solution now and go with it as soon as possible because one more anchor strike in the Straits of Mackinac and we could have devastating impacts, not just in our Great Lakes, but our whole state economy. Annette, would you like to make a one minute reply? Thank you. It is absolutely critical that we protect our water. All of those other things you talk about don't matter if we don't have fresh, clean water to take care of ourselves, to feed our families, and to build everything that we've got around here. So balancing and taking care of our clean water, I think I'm, I'm just convinced that the tunnel is the safest way we can do that. As science continues to evolve, you know we're gonna find better energy sources. We're gonna find better ways to do things. And I'm always looking for what's next that's gonna be best for our state, best for our citizens. So always open to new ideas for that. But for now, I do think the encasement, and Sarah's right, we should not be talking about this in two years. We should have things much further down the line and we should be protecting our water and taking care of our families. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Annette, you're the first to answer our last question. What is your opinion of the bill that would eliminate the exemption that the state legislature and governor's office have from freedom of information? Oh, I didn't unmute. Well, thank you for asking that question. I actually, the first bill I introduced actually had to do with Freedom of Information Act. I would very much like to extend that both to the legislature and to the governor. Other states are our local communities, right? You ask for information and it is readily available. So making the information that we have at the state level accessible and affordable for people that have those questions, I am 100% supportive of that. I think transparency and accountability in government is key for building trust. I think when we close things down and we don't share that information, it builds distrust and concern. And people wanna know what's going on behind the scenes if it's not being shared. Now, obviously in our office and in other offices, you do have information that pertains to 
constituents individually that is private and applies only to them. So I think it's absolutely critical that that information does continue to be maintained privately, just like it would be in a doctor's office. If somebody comes to me with a private concern, whether it's unemployment or something else, they need to know that that information is not going to make it on Facebook page and somebody's not going to be able to FOIA their information and find out what they asked for specific help on. But totally supportive of opening more paperwork, more answers, getting that information out to everybody. Thank you. Sarah, it's your turn. You have two minutes. Great. Thanks so much, Kim. So what I've been saying um, through all of this campaign season and last campaign season is there's nothing I love more than when I sit down with somebody who you might think that we have disagreements on most things and we realize that we agree on so much more. And just look, the last two questions, Annette and I agree on. You might think we would disagree normally, but line five, we've got some agreement. Um, we've got agreement here on transparency because i believe that there is nothing um more sacred than having access to the people that we are um supposed to uh, elect and send to lansing and washington to represent us right and so the work that they do is the work that they do for us and we should have access to that of course setting aside any um, you know, uh, information that could disclose information about someone and their personal issues. Um, so I fully uh, support more transparency in our governor, uh, governor and our legislative offices. Um, I also support really easy access to information, right? So access on the internet so that you can make a request and you're not filling out endless paperwork and waiting for a long time. That these folks that we send to Lansing, that we send to Washington, um, um, but particularly Lansing in this case, um, work for us. And we should be able to have access to every piece of that work to help us understand whether or not they're doing a good job. So that can help us make a decision about whether or not we want to rehire them in the next election cycle. Okay, thank you. Annette, would you like a one minute reply? So just recently, I introduced a bill that we call the Whistleblower Ombudsman Bill. Well, it would create an office in state government where state employees could come and report what they see as a concern to them, whether it's a financial or a policy where we could make things better. We have found sometimes when the legislature and the governor are disagreeing that these state employees don't feel like they can share that information openly. And I feel very strongly if this had been available that we would have been able to perhaps limit what happened in Flint or stop it altogether. And the same thing with the dam. If people had felt they could come forward and explain that all they got was paperwork and they couldn't actually go see the dam, they might have been able to prevent either one of these tragedies from happening. So that transparency is key. And I'm pleased to say that it passed out of committee with bipartisan support with both the leaders of the Democrat Party and the Republican. And there's a lot of bipartisanship that happens in Lansing that you don't hear about because it's not newsworthy. Sarah, would you like one minute? Sure. Uh, let me just round that out by just adding that I support full transparency when it comes to campaign finance as well. Um, and making sure that, like I said, in it, for example, in the case of the dams, that there aren't any folks who, who own regulated entities in our state who are, are allowed to buy influence via campaign finance. Um, 
to, to our, our local legislatures and we should be able to follow that money and that in that supposed influence into the decisions that people are making uh, as legislators and so that's where the transparency comes in to me and, and in the case of a dam the dam situation we need access to that as soon as possible because lives and homes are at risk thank you all right we're now going to closing statements sarah you will go first and you will have one minute sorry i was having trouble with my mic um uh well, just again, thank you to round out. Thank you to you, Kim, for doing this, to the League of Women Voters for your work to make access to voting fair and as secure and as easy as possible. Um, I, I just wanna end by saying, like I said a minute ago, I think two people, when they sit down, no matter where they are on the political spectrum, agree on so much more than we disagree with. And the reason I got into this race in the first place is because I'm so tired of the state of leadership and politics in our state, in our country, where two people just dig in on both sides of whatever issue and just scream into the void Meanwhile, people around their kitchen tables are not getting the help and the support and the resources they need to live their best lives. And that's where I come in. I have been uh, trained in conflict resolution and problem solving. Uh, I've been doing this in my organization for decades. And I would be honored by your vote on November 3rd. And with that, I'm going to ask you to provide your one-minute closing statement. Thank you. It has been an immense honor and privilege and a blessing to serve the residents of the 98th district. As we continue the progress that we've made so far together and continue working with local partners in Bay and Midland County, recovering and rebuilding from the coronavirus and flooding is gonna take years. And in that light, I will be a leader on dam safety and ensuring a flooding event like this never happens again. I've already voted to increase staff for dam safety and funding for dam safety and continue to make that a priority. Continue to support a truly independent investigation. And once that's complete, holding everyone that's responsible accountable. Literacy and education will always be my top priorities, ensuring that our children are set up for success as early as possible. In addition to Republican support, I've been endorsed by a Democrat state representative and five local Democrat county officials. I am privileged to work with them in a bipartisan manner over the last years, and I look forward to earning your support and having your vote on November 3rd. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, voters, that's it. The candidates for state representative of the 98th district have given you a few of their views. We hope something said here today will help you in your voting decisions. In closing, here are the state proposals that we will see on our ballots. Statewide Proposal 20-1, Michigan Use of State and Local Park Funds Amendment. A proposed constitutional amendment to allow money from oil and gas mining on state-owned lands to continue to be collected in state funds for land protection and creation and maintenance of parks, nature areas, and public recreation facilities, and to describe how money in those state funds can be spent. Referred to the ballot by the legislature, this proposal would allow the State Parks Endowment Fund to continue receiving money from sales of oil and gas from state-owned lands to improve, maintain, and purchase land 
for state parks and for fund administration until its balance reaches $800 million. Require subsequent oil and gas revenues from state-owned lands to go into the Natural Resources Trust Fund. Require at least 20% of endowment fund annual spending to go towards state park improvement. Require at least 25% of trust fund annual spending to go toward parks and public recreation areas and at least 25% towards land conservation. Statewide Proposal 20-2, Michigan Search Warrant for Electronic Data Amendment. A proposed constitutional amendment to require a search warrant in order to access a person's electronic data or electronic communications. Referred to the ballot by the legislature, this proposed constitutional amendment would prohibit unreasonable searches or seizures of a person's electronic data or electronic communications, require a search warrant to access a person's electronic data or electronic communications under the same conditions currently required for the government to obtain a search warrant to search a person's house or seize a person's things. I want to thank the candidates for participating in this forum. Even more important, a sincere thank you goes to the candidates for your willingness to serve as elected officials in these challenging times of governing. And to our listeners and viewers, thank you for your time and interest in watching this forum. Members of the League of Women Voters of the Midland area sincerely hoped that you would have seen and heard on this program today things that will help you with your voting decisions. We believe it is vital that citizens demonstrate informed and active participation in our government. So please be sure and vote. For more information on candidates, go to vote411.org, an online voter guide published by the League of Women Voters. Polls will be open on election day, Tuesday, November 3rd, from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. If you are voting in person, be sure you know the location of your designated voting place and have your necessary ID with you. Absentee ballots are available for all registered voters in Michigan. You can submit an application at clerk's offices in the city and throughout Midland County. Distribution of absentee ballots began on September 24th. They must be returned to your clerk's office before the close of the polls on Tuesday, November 3rd at 8 p.m. If you return your ballot by mail, remember to use two stamps and mail it as early as possible. And ideally, it would be before October 19th to ensure it is received by the deadline. If you are using a designated drop box for ballot returns outside of clerk's offices, be sure it is your clerk's office. If you have any questions on absentee voting or any other aspect of the election process, please contact the appropriate clerk's office. Finally, I want to extend a very special thank you to the people who have made this program possible. To our production manager and Zoom host, manager of MCTV, Matt Richardson, production director, Matt Thomas, and the crew, including Chris Ferguson and Mary Jo Kellogg. Thanks also to the following contributors from the League of Women Voters of the Midland area. Voter Services Chair, Sue McAllister, Timer, Jane Worth, and Zoom Coordinator, Catherine Redwine. And with that, 
please once again remember to vote on November 3rd and thank you. This program is presented by a community producer through Midland Community Television. The City of Midland and MCTV are not responsible for the content of the program. The views presented do not necessarily represent those of the City of Midland or MCTV. If you would like to produce your own program, contact MCTV at 837-3474 or access our website, cityofmidlandmi.gov MCTV. We hope you enjoy the following presentation.